This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. June 8th. 1985, Joe Simpson dangled from the side of a cliff on Ciula Grande, one of the tallest mountains in the Peruvian Andes. Above him, his climbing partner, Simon Yates, had no idea that he was trapped, dangling in midair. Earlier that day, Joe had broken his leg, and Simon was forced to help lower him down the mountain by rope a difficult task with his frostbitten hands. He couldn't see to the end of the rope, and he couldn't see that Joe had slipped over the edge of a cliff. But with each passing moment, he realized that whatever had happened to Joe, it couldn't be undone. Simon hadn't felt any movement from Joe in almost an hour. It was getting late, and he was struggling just to hold on to the rope. If he didn't do something soon, he would be dragged off the mountain, too, or else he'd freeze to death. After an hour and a half, Simon knew he had a choice to make. Stay here and die with his friend, or save himself. Simon remembered he had a pocket knife in his rucksack. He did it without thinking, without hesitation. He wrapped his frostbitten fingers around the knife pressed the blade against the rope, and sliced. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life-or-death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we began the story of British mountain climber Joe Simpson. 
Joe, and his climbing partner, Simon Yates, became the first climbers to reach the summit of Ciula Grande by way of the west face. But on the way down, Joe broke his leg, and Simon was forced to lower him down by a rope. This week, we'll conclude our story as Joe struggles to escape from an icy crevasse, battles dehydration and starvation, and drags himself across the glacier. When Simon cut the rope, Joe fell about 150 feet into an icy crevasse in the glacier below. It had been one day since the pair made history by being the first climbers to summit Ciula Grande via the west face. Now, on June 8, 1985, their triumphant moment turned into a desperate battle for survival. Crevasses vary in length and size, with some as deep as 150 feet. Sudden breaks from above can easily send large amounts of snow tumbling down. Using his headlamp, Joe looked around. Below him was only darkness. He had no idea how far down the crevasse went. It dawned on him that if he'd fallen even five feet to the right or left, he would have kept plummeting to his death. Working quickly, he grabbed an ice screw from his pack and used it to hook himself into the ice wall. This gave Joe some relief. If the ledge suddenly broke and fell, the screw would prevent him from going with it. For the next 30 minutes, he shouted Simon's name, but the only response was the howl of the blistering wind from above. His thoughts turned to his own impending death. Surprisingly, after an hour of dangling on Ciula Grande, he was indifferent about the idea of dying. He had already given up on the possibility of surviving. His only hope was that Simon was still alive and could find his own way off the mountain. As Joe looked around, he noticed the rope that had previously tethered him to Simon. It ran up the wall and out of the crevasse opening. Joe had no idea that Simon had cut the rope and he wondered if he had dragged his friend over the side of the cliff with him. If he had, it seemed like Simon would almost certainly be dead. But Joe had survived the fall, so maybe Simon had too. Whether Simon was dead or alive, if the rope was still attached to his body, it would be weighted down on top of the glacier. He began to tug on the rope, waiting for it to tighten, but it didn't. The rope just kept sliding towards him, then, the severed end fell right on top of him. He slowly picked it up and shined his light on the frayed nylon fibers. It was obvious that Simon had cut him loose. Joe leaned back against the wall of the crevasse, which he was now certain would be his tomb. He felt surprisingly at peace with Simon's decision. It made sense. If Simon had kept holding on, he would have died. He was at least happy knowing that his friend had a chance to survive. After a couple of minutes, he turned off his headlamp. As he sat in the darkness, a strange silence filled the crevasse. There was no more wind. Looking up, he could barely make out the stars. A sense of loneliness filled him. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. He began hitting his head against the wall, cursing himself for his stupidity. 
He shouted at himself over and over. He was stupid. He should have planned better. This was all his own fault. Beyond the obvious emotional stress he was under, Joe was beginning to feel the effects of dehydration. Eating snow at such high altitudes puts climbers at risk for hypothermia, so he had to go without fluids all day. He was starting to experience rapid mood swings, which would soon give way to delirium. When Joe awoke the next morning, all the fear, anger, and hopelessness that had possessed him had disappeared. It was replaced by resounding determination. While he had already accepted death, he couldn't bear the thought of dying here, in this lonely cavern. If he was going to die, he could at least die trying. As sunlight peeked through the opening, he finally got a better look at the physical features of the crevasse. The wall looked stable. With the help of the ice screws and the severed rope, he could attach himself to the wall, and from there, he might be able to climb out with his axes and crampons. In the span of an hour, he tried and failed four times. The ice broke under him each time he kicked his crampons into the wall. Every time he fell down, a searing pain shot up his broken leg. Based on the light, he figured it was somewhere around 6 a.m. His thoughts turned to Simon, and he wondered where his partner was now. Perhaps he was already crossing the glacier. As it happened, Simon was still just above, not yet free of the mountain. He thought there was little hope that Joe was still alive, but he couldn't dwell on it now. He needed to get moving. Emerging from his ice cave, Simon found a safe slope to rappel down. As he made his way toward it, he spotted the 90-degree cliff edge that Joe had disappeared over. He finally realized why Joe hadn't freed up his weight so that Simon could pull the knot closer, why they had been stuck in one spot for 90 minutes. As Simon rappelled closer to the glacier, he saw the crevasse and realized that Joe would have fallen into it. He started to shout Joe's name, though he didn't know why. The distance from the cliff's edge to the bottom was 100 feet. Joe was almost certainly dead, and Simon had killed him. His thoughts turned toward home, to England. He knew that when he returned, he almost certainly was going to be shamed for cutting the rope. But when he finished rappelling down the mountain and made it onto the glacier, he was overcome with relief. After five agonizing days, he had made it off the mountain. He could be back at base camp by late afternoon. As he started crossing the glacier, the thought of going back to check if Joe was alive never entered his head. He was convinced that Joe had died from the fall. His dehydration and hunger told him to go, to keep walking back to base camp. So that was what he did. Back in the crevasse, Joe knew he needed to devise a new plan if he wanted to get out. He took off his gloves and inspected his frozen fingers. The frostbite was severe. Four fingers were black from frostbite, and one of his thumbs was blue. The black fingers indicated that the tissue was dead. If he wasn't careful, gangrene could set in, 
and if he ever made it back, they'd have to be amputated. After inspecting his hands, Joe turned his attention to finding a way out of the crevasse. Climbing wasn't going to happen. He looked at both sides of the ledge and wondered if he could rappel down. Crevasses are like small canyons. They have a floor down at the base. If Joe could reach the bottom, maybe he could find an entrance and crawl out. Joe grasped his rope, which was screwed into the ice wall. He threw the loose end to the right and watched it fall into the darkness. He clipped himself onto the rope, hoping beyond hope that it would hold. Then he put both legs over the lip of the ledge and fell backward. The screw held. Very slowly, he descended deeper into the darkness. The further he went, the more it seemed it would never end. Looking up, he could no longer see the screw that the rope was attached to. As he descended, the rope started to twist, turning his body toward the ice wall. Joe tried to fight the turn, but his legs slammed into the wall, sending a shock of searing pain to his spine. Gritting his teeth, he managed to push through the pain and continue down. After about 80 feet, Joe finally saw the bottom. And once he reached the snow floor, he was no longer staring into a dark abyss. He immediately noticed a slope. At the top, rays of sun shot into the crevasse. An exit. Shifting to his stomach, he began to crawl across the snow floor, up the slope to the exit. As he crawled, he noticed honeycomb-shaped gaps along the floor. Then he heard the sound of ice breaking. A honeycomb pattern indicates that the ice is filled with air pockets and therefore not completely solid. One wrong shift could cause the brittle ice to break at any moment and Joe had no idea how much deeper the crevasse went. After staying as stiff as a board for several minutes, he slowly and painfully started to crawl forward again. It took him 10 minutes to make it to the base of the slope, but the ice held. When he turned up towards the exit, he noticed that the slope suddenly became steeper, increasing to 65 degrees. Gritting his teeth through the pain, he pushed himself up onto both legs and climbed the remaining 130 feet to the exit. Finally, after over five excruciating hours, he emerged from the belly of the crevasse. Rays of sun washed over him, blinding him as he crawled onto the top of the glacier. He fell into the snow and burst into laughter. All around him, he could see the beauty of the Andes. He still had a difficult journey ahead of him. Crawling back to base camp was going to be far from easy. But he wasn't in the ice tomb anymore. And he was determined to make it home. Coming up, Joe begins the daunting crawl across the five-mile-long glacier. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On June 9th, 1985, Joe Simpson emerged from the crevasse he'd been trapped in for 12 hours. His right leg was broken. He was severely dehydrated, but he had survived. Meanwhile, Simon Yates had just made it safely across the glacier. Once he finally stepped off the ice and onto solid earth, he was filled with hope at the prospect of actually making it home. But this was immediately replaced by a creeping sense of guilt and shame. He didn't know how he was going to explain why he cut the rope. He wondered if people were going to perceive him as a coward. By the afternoon, Simon found a familiar face among the boulders, Richard Hawking. The British world traveler they asked to watch their base camp. Richard had feared both the young climbers were dead and made his way toward the glacier, hoping he could at least find their bodies. When Richard saw Simon come stumbling down the mountain, he was shocked. Richard looked past him, waiting for Joe. But the look on Simon's face hinted at what might have happened. He asked Simon, where's Joe? Simon responded, Joe's dead. Joe may not have actually been dead yet, but the gravity of what lay ahead for him had begun to sink in. He was still about five miles from base camp, severely dehydrated and malnourished. Crawling across the glacier was slow going, but he kept himself motivated by creating small goals. He would pick out a serac, or a large column of ice, a short distance away and give himself a time limit of 15 or 20 minutes to reach it. After a short break, he would choose another marker and start again. As he made his way down, Joe realized that, by some miracle, tracks were still visible in the snow. Simon was the only other person on the mountain, so Joe knew the tracks must be his. Following them would lead back to base camp, as long as Simon hadn't fallen into a crevasse himself. More than anything, the tracks gave him hope. It was like his friend was walking next to him. Joe moved across the glacier on his stomach, using the axes to drag himself along. After a while, he tried turning over and crawling on his back. While this allowed him to move a bit quicker, he was also forced to stare at his useless broken leg as it slid across the ground. And when he looked up, he had a pristine view of the mountain's west face, the cause of all his trouble. Both the leg and the mountainside seemed to be mocking him for his mistakes. In the afternoon, it began to snow and the wind picked up. Joe looked ahead. He could see Simon's footsteps begin to fill. The voice in his head told him to move faster. He listened. When night came, Joe didn't stop. He was determined to go all night. But then, he slipped down an icy slope and landed on his back. He struggled desperately to turn himself around, but he was exhausted. 
He had a decision to make. Spend his energy trying to continue or spend it making an ice cave so that he could rest for a couple of hours. The ice cave, at least, would keep him warm. So that was it. On the morning of day six, Joe woke screaming from a nightmare, only made worse by the claustrophobic tightness of the snow cave. For a moment, he thought he was back in the crevasse, but then he realized it was only a dream. He was closer to base camp than ever. The wind had died down and it had stopped snowing, but the previous evening's snowfall had completely covered Simon's tracks. Since there were no tracks to follow, he was forced to be creative. To make sure he was still going in the right direction, he used the mountains around him as his guide. Since Joe and Simon had spent weeks acclimatizing before setting off, they'd become very familiar with their surroundings, and natural landmarks could guide him back to their starting point. He saw that he was near the bottom of Mount Yurupaha. Soon he entered a stretch of the glacier that was a massive maze of crevasses. In slow succession, Joe zigzagged through the labyrinth of holes. It was taxing. He almost wanted to give up. The dehydration didn't help. No longer on the mountain, Joe was finally able to eat some of the snow without fear of hypothermia. It wasn't nearly enough to quench his burning thirst. But something told him to keep moving. Hours passed. Finally, he saw a cluster of large boulders ahead that weren't covered in ice. It was the end of the glacier. He dragged himself to the very edge and fell into the moraines. Taking in the rocky terrain, he knew that crawling as he had on the glacier wasn't an option. He was going to have to hop across, and that meant getting creative again. Joe didn't know how badly his leg was broken, and all the movement might have already damaged it even further. To make it through the moraines, he was going to have to make a splint, both to protect his leg from the rocks and to keep the broken bones in place as he hopped around. Ideally, a splint should be made from strong material, like thick tree branches, and tied together with a belt or a shoelace. Joe, unfortunately, didn't have these items. He dumped out the contents of his rucksack. The best he had was his sleeping mat. He tied it as tight as he could around his broken leg. On his first attempt to hop across the rocks, he immediately fell. On his second, he fell again. On the third, he smashed his broken knee into a boulder, sending a sharp pain up his leg. But he was determined. Using the same technique he used on the glacier, he would set goalposts like a particularly large boulder and then give himself a time limit to reach them. For hours, he would hop and fall. And with each fall, he told himself to keep moving, to push through the pain. He had already climbed out of the crevasse and crawled off the glacier. Now, he was going to hop out of the moraine. Back at base camp, Richard suggested that he and Simon leave right away. After seeing how despondent Simon was, he wanted to get him as far from the mountain as possible to ease his trauma. But Simon was still too exhausted to move. 
He needed a day or two to collect himself and rest before venturing back. Simon went through the possessions Joe had left at base camp, his clothes, his diary, everything he could find. He picked out a few items he planned to return to Joe's parents. Then, with Richard's help, he burned the rest of it. For Simon, this was his way of saying goodbye. As the afternoon hours of day six ticked by, Joe started to hear dripping water echoing against the mountain walls. Then the drops increased to a trickle. He wasn't sure if his mind was playing games on him or if it was real. It had been two and a half days since he'd had clean water to drink. His dehydration was rapidly getting worse. He wanted to believe it was true, but he also knew that he was still near the glacier. The echoes could be from anywhere. Regardless, Joe was thankful that the weather was finally on his side. There was no sign of a storm on its way. Guided by the stars and the moon, Joe kept hopping into the night. Around 10 p.m., he tripped on a rock and slammed to the ground. He told himself this was as good a spot as any to rest, so he drifted off right there. June 10th, 1985, day seven. When Joe awakened, thoughts of death began to creep back into his head. All his determination had suddenly evaporated. Perhaps it was the dehydration and lack of nutrition, but he woke up not wanting to continue on. He began to wonder if base camp was even still there. If Simon thought Joe was dead, he would have no reason to wait. Joe had long accepted that he was going to die in Peru, but he didn't want to die alone. If he could just see a human face one last time, all his efforts wouldn't have been in vain. This desire inspired him to pull himself up and continue his journey. Little did Joe know, base camp was still there, but it wouldn't be for very long. By mid-morning, Simon had decided that he was finally ready to leave, to put Ciula Grande behind him. But he didn't want to leave today. He still wanted one more day of rest. Richard was more than willing to wait. He left base camp and walked to a nearby house to borrow some donkeys to help shuttle their gear. When he returned, he told Simon they were set to leave at 6 a.m. the next day. Back in the moraine, Joe had set a goal to reach an area known as Bomb Alley by noon. Bomb Alley contained the thing he craved the most, water. Time drifted as he hopped. With each fall, it became that much harder to continue. He realized he wasn't going to hit his 12 p.m. deadline, but he longed for water. So he kept hopping until finally, he made it. It was 1 p.m., an hour behind schedule. The moment he reached Bomb Alley, he could hear the sound of water again. The thinnest layer of water trickling down a granite wall. He hobbled over and pressed his lips to the icy liquid. Instantly, he could feel his strength returning. He drank until he had to throw up. Then he drank some more. 
Many times when people suffer from dehydration, they'll drink too much water the first chance they get. This can be just as dangerous. Overhydration can lead to nausea, vomiting, headaches, seizures, or even a coma. After Bomb Alley came the Upper Lakes, a three-hour crawl. And from there, it wasn't much further until base camp. Sure enough, at around 4 p.m., Joe crawled to the banks of a crescent-shaped lake. On the other side was a moraine dam. Beyond that was a valley. At the bottom of the valley was base camp. Joe could see the end in sight. Next, Joe battles through delirium as he makes his final push. Now, back to the story. On June 4, 1985, Joe Simpson had left base camp to summit Ciula Grande. And now, a week later, he was lying on his stomach, drinking from a lake, staving off death. He was close to base camp. He just needed to push himself a little further. Joe looked at his watch. It was just after 4 p.m. He knew he had maybe two hours left of daylight. If he could make it to the other side of the lake before nightfall, he could yell for help. All he could think about was whether Simon and Richard had left base camp. That thought terrified him, and he used the fear to motivate himself to move faster. By the time he reached the slope of the Moraine Dam on the other side of the lake, the sun was gone. But it hadn't yet set. Clouds had formed and blocked it out. In his rush to make it to the dam before evening, he didn't even notice the storm clouds forming. Using his axes to climb the slope, he finally reached the top, looked down the other side, and saw nothing. The clouds had descended into the valley, and he couldn't see a thing below. Hoping he was close to base camp, he began to shout Simon's name. There was no response. He wondered if they couldn't hear him, or worse, if they really did leave. His mind drifted as he made his way down the slope. He was unsure where he was going or how long it was taking him. As he later remembered, I vaguely knew it should have taken me only 10 minutes to reach the camp. Five hours could have been 10 minutes. I no longer understood. Time passed. A song by the West German band Boney M popped into his head. It was one of their Euro disco hits, Brown Girl in the Ring. Joe wasn't sure why Boney M came to him because he didn't even like their music. Then he started laughing at his own jokes, jokes that weren't even funny, but he couldn't stop. In between fits, he looked at his watch and saw that it was early in the morning, 2 a.m., maybe 3 a.m. He drifted in and out of sleep as he rolled down the hill. Suddenly, a repulsive stench forced Joe out of his haze. He lifted his hands from the mud and sniffed his gloves. They smelled of feces. He was confused for a moment, and then it clicked. This was the spot they had used as a bathroom. He was just outside of base camp. 
Joe shouted Simon's name at the top of his lungs. His voice cracked as he pleaded, but all he heard was the quiet sound of snow falling. After several minutes of silence, he was convinced that this was it. This was the end. If they didn't answer, this was the spot where he was going to die. He began to weep. And then he heard it, nylon rustling in the distance. A flicker of light appeared, and then he heard his name. Joe yelled back for Simon. It was a matter of seconds before Simon and Richard came rushing to his side. Joe remembers Simon cursing profusely in disbelief as they dragged him the 200 yards to base camp. The first thing Joe said to Simon was that he had done right by cutting the rope. He thanked Simon for taking him as far as he could. He admitted that had the roles been reversed, he would have done the same thing. Finally, inside the tent, Joe asked for his clothes. He wanted nothing more than to get out of the horribly smelly outfit he'd been wearing for the last week, which by now was covered in vomit, urine, and feces. Simon and Richard admitted sheepishly that they had burned all of his clothes. It took three days to get Joe to the hospital in Lima, Peru. In a fog of painkillers, beer, and cigarettes, he doesn't remember much about the experience, except for a few bits and pieces here and there. When they finally did get him to the hospital, he was shocked to see how much weight he had lost. At the beginning of the climb, Joe had weighed 143 pounds. Now he weighed 98 pounds. He had lost a third of his body weight in just over a week, with the bulk of it coming from the four days alone after the summit. That kind of rapid weight loss can have deadly effects, and it could permanently alter his metabolism. A slow metabolism can lead to weight gain, high blood pressure, diabetes, or a stroke. Thankfully, his metabolism returned to normal. However, he was diagnosed with ketoacidosis, which had nearly sent him into a coma. Ketoacidosis comes when the body doesn't produce enough insulin. The liver begins to break down fat for fuel, called ketones. Ketones are acidic, and once they enter your bloodstream, it can be life-threatening. In Joe's case, he was lucky that before going to Peru, he was both mentally and physically in good condition. Once he was fully nourished and rested, it didn't take long for him to recover. His broken leg, however, took a lot longer to heal. When he landed on his right leg, his right tibia, the shin bone, rammed into his kneecap, completely shattering the knee. He underwent six surgeries over the course of two years. The doctors told him he would have a permanent limp and he would never be able to climb again. After barely surviving Ciula Grande, Joe Simpson should have hung up his climbing shoes and retired. The doctors practically told him as much when they said he would never climb again. But Ciula Grande, if anything, only strengthened his resolve to keep climbing. By 1991, he was back at it. But once again, he experienced a near-fatal accident. While climbing Pachermo Peak, an over 20,000-foot mountain in Nepal, 
Joe fell 800 feet and was knocked unconscious for 45 minutes. But even that didn't stop him. He kept climbing throughout the 2000s, well into his 40s. In 2009, at the age of 49, Joe became the first person to climb the south side of Mira Peak, a 21,247-foot mountain in Nepal. As he stood at the top, overlooking the Himalayas, Joe decided it was finally time to call it quits. He was satisfied. He returned to England, sold all of his gear, and hasn't climbed a mountain since. In the years between his rehabilitation in 1985 and his return to the mountains in 1991, Joe discovered a passion for writing. In 1988, he published his harrowing tale of survival in a memoir, Touching the Void. The book became an international bestseller. The success of the book sparked a career in writing. Since 1988, Joe has written eight books, a mixture of fiction and nonfiction. Touching the Void wasn't just written as a way to cope with the experience, but as a response to criticism of his partner, Simon. Upon their return, Simon faced ridicule for sending Joe plunging into the crevasse instead of waiting it out. But Joe, even to this day, believes Simon did the right thing. In fact, he believes Simon should have left him after he broke his leg. For sticking around at all, Joe regards Simon as his savior and dedicated the book to him. In 1997, at age 33, Simon wrote a book called Against the Wall, detailing another climb in Chile. Included was a brief analysis of what went wrong on Ciula Grande. He wrote, and Joe later agreed, that the reason for their misfortune wasn't the broken leg nor the sudden snowstorm. It was the fact that they didn't bring enough gas. Had they brought another canister for their stove, they would have been able to warm more water and stay hydrated, giving them the time to ride out the storm on the mountain. Instead, they had run out of gas at the beginning of day four and were rushing to get back to base camp before they died of dehydration. As the years went on, Joe and Simon drifted apart as young friends do, seeing each other less and less. Joe focused on his writing and motivational speaking career, and Simon started a family in England. In 2002, the pair saw each other for the first time in 10 years while filming scenes for the Touching the Void docudrama. Both men were interviewed for the film and reenacted some of the more dangerous parts of the climb. It was the first time either of them had been back to Ciula Grande. Supposedly, the two men had a falling out during press for the film, and as of this recording, have barely spoken to each other since. Joe Simpson did the impossible. After shattering his knee and falling 150 feet into a crevasse, he gathered the strength to crawl five miles to safety. In those three days, he was brought to the brink of insanity. And whenever he felt the urge to quit, he was able to ignore the temptation and continue forward. To this day, Joe can't explain how or why he was able to survive. By all rights, he should have died on Ciula Grande. He was a cocky, thrill-seeking 25-year-old who wanted to climb every mountain, 
and he didn't give a damn about the consequences. In the 30 years since the accident, Joe has maintained that it was his fear of dying alone and being forgotten that drove him to go on. In a 2004 interview with Sports Illustrated, he stated, My abiding memory is of an appalling sense of loneliness, a sense of abandon. I wanted to be somebody when I died. Standing on the summit of Ciula Grande, Joe Simpson was a giant. Within hours, he was brought down to his lowest point. And in the end, his fear is what pushed him to survive. Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Touching the Void by Joe Simpson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParkCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParkCast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app tap browse and type survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Leviskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Survival was written by Joe Guerra and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>